Federal Risk and Authorization Management Program, known as FedRAMP, is supposed to make it easier for agencies to use commercial cloud computing. FedRAMP policy has been around for a dozen years, but only became law at the end of last year. Well, will that make a difference? We get one view from attorney Michael Borgia, a partner at Davis Wright Tremaine. Mr. Borgia, good to have you on. Good morning. Thanks for having me. And you have been watching FedRAMP for quite some time now. And the usual things people say about it still apply. The vendors say it takes too long to get certified. And agencies seem to want their own certification anyway. So it's there. Everybody admires it. It's been part of cloud. But how can this new law maybe further things a little bit? Well, it's a great question. And to a large extent, we'll have to see. I think that the law did some important things to discuss, but it it could have gone further. I think it took somewhat of a measured approach, still tried to respect the basic framework we got from FISMA back in 2002 of ultimately this comes down to the agencies and figuring out their own authorization. So, you know, they could have blown that up and they could have said, no, it's going to be decided for you, but they didn't. So we'll have to see. There's a few things I think this law does that is very, very interesting. What you've seen, if you've, if you've read about this, a lot of discussion of what's called this presumption of adequacy. I would liken it to sort of a thumb or something on the scale. It is not requiring agencies to take previous authorizations from other agencies or from the jab or you know whatever we have going forward but it's i think trying to push them in that direction so essentially in non-legal terms what the presumption of adequacy says is that if a cloud service has gone through fedramp one way or the other has an authority to operate or an authorization to operate as it's called in the statute or a patos you know things like that then another agency must presume that that authorization is adequate for its own authorization it doesn't have to take it 100% of the time. There are some kind of outs in the law. The agencies are still uh, empowered to decide that they need more security controls than the FedRAMP ATO might provide. But again, it's a finger on the scale to say you have to presume that. There's a sort of a parallel provision that says it's sort of almost painfully obvious, but important. It kind of speaks to the frustration of CSPs in the space that agencies have to check they're required to check the uh, the database and actually know, has this thing been authorized yet? So it almost seems silly, but yet I think that's kind of where we are. Right. The whole thing is kind of belt and suspenders. It's been certified right. through FedRAMP, this particular service or this cloud provider for Agency X. I'm the same size agency and I have about the same requirements, but yet I'm still reluctant to say, okay, they approved it. Here we go, even though they're entitled to. But every agency feels it's unique in so many domains, no less so than in cloud computing. For sure. For sure. And, and that's understandable. I mean, you can't blame agencies for feeling like if something bad happens, it's it's our issue. It's our mistake, our risk. And so we want to have our hands in it and really understand it. Uh, but as you alluded to, there's a lot of frustration among CSPs. There was a, a GAO report from, I believe, 2019 that referenced still fairly significant and common non-use of FedRAMP. Many agencies, I believe the number was, I think 15 out of 24 that were using non-FedRAMP authorized cloud services. They cite the example of, well, I don't think they named the agency, but there's one agency that was using 90 non-FedRAMP authorized. So frustrating, I think, for the government, but also frustrating for cloud service providers, because then why are we doing this? Right. And the term cloud service providers has really expanded in the last 10 or 12 years. Early on, people thought it was the basic cloud operators, the infrastructure companies, Google, Amazon, Oracle, and a couple of others, and Microsoft. But really, it's thousands of companies that offer any kind of software as a service hosted in a cloud. 
Absolutely. Yeah, there's many different models. And if you we want to deep dive into the federated materials, you can learn about, you know, infrastructure as a service and platform as a service and software as a service and almost anything else as a service. But this is just a larger IT issue. Even private sector purchases of cloud services, this is where they're going. Moving off an on-premises infrastructure and internally developed software, internally maintained data centers, all the software, all the, the servers, you know, moving towards the cloud. So you're right. It's a multi-layered ecosystem. And so now many, 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 even from the most kind of innocuous software purchases could implicate FedRAMP because, uh, uh, you know, so much is coming from the cloud and from, especially from SaaS, software as a service. We're speaking with attorney Michael Borgia. He's a partner at Davis Wright Tremaine. And you're also writing that perhaps this law can speed up the authorization or the speed up the acceptance of companies into the FedRAMP to become authorized, because that's been a big complaint, is how long it takes and how expensive it is. How can the law boost that process? Well, I think an under-discussed part of the law, and we've only it's only you know just been passed in December, so we'll see. But an under-discussed part is the structural changes to the law. It's kind of amazing given the importance of FedRAMP, and I have to give them credit how much they've been able to accomplish, despite the fact that the FedRAMP is run by the Joint Authorization Board, the JAB, which is made up of the CIOs of DOD, DHS, and GSA. If those are not the largest three agencies, they got to be up there, right? So it's almost treated this as like a side hustle for those people. Um, that's a massive job being the CIO of DHS or, or DOD, right? And yet they're, they're also doing this and there's not even a separate appropriation for it. So I think one of the important things that this law is going to do that doesn't seem that exciting, but I think could have real changes is actually starting to, you know, in law, in, in statute, build out formal responsibilities, um, apportioning those amongst different agencies, I think giving those CIOs some help, actually adding, you know, potentially members to the FedRAMP board, which is, I think, the new, a newly created by this law board that will have sort of oversight and guidance. I think that while there's nothing directly in the law that says, okay, you, if you do X, you will speed it up. I think the hope is that by formalizing this, by better apportioning responsibility, by bringing in more stakeholders, that it will get better, it will get faster, because you're going to have hopefully more people who are really dedicated to this and really trying to see it through. Right. And you mentioned, too, that the GSA gets lots of specific responsibility, develop, coordinate, implement a process to support agency review, develop and publish templates, best practices, technical assistance, and other materials to support authorization. To what extent have they done that so far? So it's interesting. I think that the way – and we'll have to see how this all comes down. But as I read the law, GSA, it mostly maintains its current responsibility. But when you look at the provisions, I think it actually gets into more substance as well. So I think we'll see GSA just have more responsibility and more action in general. So right now, under the current program that was you know, predated the, the law, has been back since 2011, uh, GSA is – I guess it's true to name, is their administrator. They have the, the project management office, and they put out guidance – they create templates, you know, they are kind of the day-to-day workhorses of the program. And they'll still do that here. But there's an interesting provision that also empowers them to actually grant FedRAMP authorizations. And I'm interested to see how they implement that. I haven't seen any discussion from FedRAMP or from the GSA about that yet. But I think that one of the goals here is to put more into GSA, let GSA run this, Again, you know, maybe not have to do so much through a jab, especially because, I, again, I would have to imagine the jab is just tapped out given how busy those individuals are anyway. So run more through the GSA and hopefully streamline the process that way. And then you've got OMB, you've got the FedRAMP board, and you've got this advisory committee. So you have lots of people, lots of cooks in the kitchen still kind of 
offering their advice and guidance on how to improve the program. And the whole thing has a sunset provision, too. Yeah, I have not seen any discussion of that, but I think that's fascinating. So five years and then a sunset. I, I don't know. Perhaps that was just an effort to say, look, if this goes badly, then we'll all undo it and we'll go back to what we had and what we had was okay. But I'm hopeful cautiously optimistic, I would say, that this is going to make the program better, more formal. I don't want to say, I mean, hesitate more professional because I mean, it's professional, but, you know, more of a full-time job and push these things through faster and get a better experience for cloud service providers. And just a detail here, because the OMB director by law gets a lot of responsibilities here Uh and they have to make a report each year to the GAO. So it's a little bit of bureaucracy spreading here. In a practical sense, who in OMB would actually get this responsibility? Would it be the federal CIO? Well, it all comes down to the director. I assume the director will probably have designees, but and the statute, it all comes back to the director. So high level, which I think is good, but we'll have to see who actually in, you know, it would make sense if it was the CIO or someone in information technology, information security. Right, because the law always says the director or the administrator or the agency head, but the reality is someone's belly button gets pushed on by that director, administrator, or agency head. Yeah, well, let's hope so, because again, those are very busy people. So that's my expectation is, I think OMB has kind of a a lot of oversight responsibilities here defined in in the law, and they already did. They already did have a lot of oversight. So I I think we'll still see OMB play quite a strong role in this. And they're a little bit of man behind the curtain. You've got the FedRAMP board, you've got the advisory committee, but they still have a lot of responsibility to make recommendations, and I think to, to shape what these other bodies look like. So they're not going away. Well, the man behind the curtain eventually floated away in a balloon, so let's not keep that (laughs) in mind. But bottom line, this will enhance adoption of cloud computing, do you think, by the federal agencies? I think so. I think so. I think what I'm most hopeful of, in a way, is that this will make things easier for more medium-sized and smaller cloud service providers as well. You know, I want to make it easier for larger as well, but I think what a lot of struggle here is that more medium and small cloud service providers, and as you said, this doesn't just mean infrastructure providers. This could mean any software vendor that has cloud services in a SaaS model. And they, I think, especially struggled to go through the arduous FedRAMP authorization process and then get told, well, I'm sorry, that's actually not enough for the second agency. You got to go through it again or go through other things. To make matters worse for them, you, you may also be familiar with StateRamp, which is a nonprofit organization that mm-hmm. has kind of created as somewhat of a parallel to FedRAMP for states and local governments. And many small and medium-sized businesses want to get into there and provide software for school boards, for you know city hall, things like that. Well, one of the ways you can do that is by already being FedRAMP authorized. So if being FedRAMP authorized is really hard for a small business, now it's a real kick in the teeth to then say, well, now it's even harder to get into City Hall. So I'm hopeful that it will streamline the process for everyone. In particular, I'm hoping that for the smaller and medium-sized businesses, it will enable them to get authorized. Because right now, I think the authorization process is a huge barrier for those, uh, which is bad for competition. Attorney Michael Borgia is a partner at Davis Wright Tremaine. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his blog, which I recommend reading on FedRAMP at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. 
to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? Oh, uh, yeah, almost, uh, Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics, I, um, one of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from from the NFL uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of of people with intellectual disabilities and and, and physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. And so I, I knew that I knew that work a bit, you know, they, they basically were in direct care. And, and I will say, and on, I obviously will say about my, my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints. Uh, but, uh, the, the men and women that do take care of people with uh, profound disabilities are, are really, um, you know, we, we can't do enough to salute them. Um, they're, they're really heroes. And, um, so I was, I was drawn when I, I, and I just saw that, you know, Special Olympics was looking for someone and I thought, well, you know, take a look at it and see, see, you know, throw, uh, send in my information and lo and behold, I, I, I get hired and, um, I learn, uh, every day, almost something from, especially from our athletes. Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington, DC. And, you know, uh, Terrell, who, who works in, in our mailroom, who comes by with packages and deliveries. Uh, if you're having a day that's, you know, getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in, but Terrell comes by always happy, always enthused, uh, has a, has a good story. Like it can just turn a day around for you. And, and, and you think of, I, I, you know, often when you'll walk away, I'll be like, you know, whatever was bothering me or whatever is, you know, stressing me out. And come on, you know, like look at look at Terrell. Like he, he he faces everything with optimism, and 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 I've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the United States and globally. You see people who have had everything stacked against them. You know, their parents when they were born were often told this is a tragedy, and you should you should you know send your this child away. Don't don't you know and kind of forget about them. Get, turn them over to the state or or wherever, and and you know that you know just kind of watch, watch your hands a bit. Um, and 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 in in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and but they've still faced enormous challenges, you know. And but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming, and uh, and and you know, besting their times from, from their last competition. And they're so committed and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs. And, and, and I've seen so much perseverance and grit, uh, from the athletes of special Olympics that, uh, I, I, Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman, uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more. Uh, we get more than we give uh, working with Special Olympics. It, you know, we, and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do. But but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I, 
I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That, that, you know, it's a, and it's so unique and it's so uh, joyful. And, and uh, I mean, we work hard and, you know, we we're up against, you know, the things that nonprofits are up against and, you know, the, you know, the issues of the day, but uh, man, you see it, it and, and, and the inclusion and the at special Olympics, no one's excluded. You know, no, right. no one's excluded. Everyone yep. is equal at Special Olympics. It, and, you know, in a country that's quite divided on so many lines, politically and uh, socially, uh, economically, race and uh, sexual orientation and whatnot. But you go to Special Olympics and everyone's involved. Everyone's welcome. Everyone's equal. And I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics in experience the power of special olympics for themselves i i I can't imagine that one help our country and help our world um to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference how how do we get how can listeners get involved in special olympics ways to get involved uh, tons of ways so uh volunteers obviously coaches officials uh, and, and the thing that, that, that uh, Tim Shriver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that, that I mentioned earlier, um, where people and, and it doesn't have to be. Uh, it's not just school age. It's it's, uh, you know, we say nine to ninety nine or uh, year old uh, folks uh, that play on teams, uh, bowl together, golf together, play soccer, basketball together. Uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think, when you when you go back to the founding uh, of our organization, what Mrs. Tri- Mrs. Shriver was trying to do uh, was to, to uh, create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together. We still have traditional uh, teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams, all intellectual disabilities. But this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot, I think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences and that our athletes, man, are some of the grittiest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out at, you know, uh, specialolympics.org on, on our website, uh, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where, what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we'll, uh, Talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.